Every car has a designer and a maker, and it's designed and made for a specific purpose. The finest automobile I ever had was quite a while ago. It was a 2001 Lexus LS430. It's the biggest Lexus they make with a big old V8 and rear-wheel drive. That was the finest car I ever had. Smooth, powerful, quiet, really nice car. One time I was driving home from Omaha, and I saw one just like mine, hauling lumber. <laughs> he had the sunroof open, and the two-by-fours were stuck on the floorboard of the passenger side and sticking out the sunroof. I was amazed how much lumber he got in that very fine automobile. Now, he should have used a truck. What exactly is your body for? It's many times more complicated and intricate than any car that's ever been built or ever will be built. And the designer and the maker, of course, is God himself. Scripture tells us that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your body has a purpose. It's made for something. Our passage in 1 Corinthians 6 says it's made for the Lord. The body is made for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In recent times, whenever I get up to speak or teach or preach, I really like to think about this quote from Mark Ashton. Preaching or teaching is not to achieve increased biblical understanding along with a few practical applications. Rather, the aim is that we will encounter God himself in a life-changing way. The word will make a difference. It will produce change in our lives. Let me offer a small prayer here. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to study your word. And this morning, I pray that it would, we would listen to it, we would hear it, and it would change our lives. Amen. Okay, let's look at our passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Brad took me to lunch and said, would you preach? And you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to choose what you preach, but this is what he told me to do. And the Lord has really blessed up my time in studying, and I appreciate it. So I'm going to read out of the New American Standard, 1 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God, glorify God in your body. 
Now, our context is a letter written to the church at Corinth by Paul. And in Corinth, they had a temple to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Immorality was simply accepted in Corinth at that time, much like it is accepted today in our culture and all too often even in the church. Sex as a form of worship to the goddess Aphrodite was just commonplace. Now remember, Paul is talking to believers. Uh, the first uh, message that Brad had emphasized that, how these were born-again believers that Paul praised. So Paul is certainly addressing the error in the church at Corinth. He's also addressing the error of our culture today. There's two imperatives in our passage. Flee and glorify God in your body. We need to define sexual immorality as it appears in this passage. He's referring to any type of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Now, one can preach from this passage on specifics about how to flee. And in my preparation, I listened to some, some sermons, and you can find a lot of them. and They give you great advice on how to flee temptation. And of course, our best example in Scripture is Joseph in the Old Testament. However, the Lord has laid on my heart today to focus on what it means when it says the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body, therefore glorify God in your body. So what is the body for? Let's look at verse 12. I have the, and if you have the NIV, you're going to have quotation marks in these first few statements that the Corinthians make. The Corinthians had several sayings that they would use, and this is one of them. I have the right to do anything. But Paul answers, but everything, not everything is beneficial. They repeat their saying, I have the right to do anything. Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, how Paul had taught the Corinthians that they have true freedom in Christ. There's two really strong positions that we as Christians can have. One of them is legalism. Legalism says, all things are wrong, unless you can prove from a specific scripture passage that it is right. True Christian freedom says, everything is right. God made the earth and everything in it. Only what the word of God labels as wrong is wrong. Now the correct view is freedom in Christ. And true freedom in Christ opens us up to a world of discovery and enjoyment. Any of you that know me very well know that I absolutely love the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, I absolutely love it. It tells us how we can live under the sun while we are in our human mortal bodies at this time. It gives us the freedom to be human. A couple of verses out of Ecclesiastes, it says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. We're all going to die. And anything that the Lord has led, put on our hearts to do, Ecclesiastes gives us the privilege and the permission to do it with all the gusto we have. The Corinthians begin trying to defend their sin by using Paul's teaching about freedom in Christ. I mean, can you imagine they say something like, well, sexual freedom is theologically sound, Paul. 
you told us we can do whatever we want. Now, their sin was obvious, especially to us, but you know, it was not evidently obvious to them. And isn't that like it is today? But Paul addresses their argument more than giving them a bunch of uh, rules that they might uh, follow. They repeat their argument, and Paul brings up idolatrous addiction, which is, we're not talking about that today, but uh, it's a very serious problem that affects so much of our culture today. But I do find it interesting that he's not just honing in on don't do this, don't do this, but rather addressing their argument uh, with uh, too, too much freedom or legalism. Now, we need to balance the truth with what, how God wants us to do so. You know, the Bible says that we should always be truthing. Everything that we're doing, we should be doing it in truth, but we need to do it with love. Balancing the truth is not compromising the truth. It's preaching the truth, teaching the truth, living the truth in a way that God wants us to, which glorifies him. It's like walking on the top of a concrete block fence, a six-foot-high fence or a tightrope. You can fall off either side, and the same distance to the ground, it's the same distance to the ground. The pathway of liberty is always a narrow path. It's wonderful and freeing and exhilarating, but it's not wide. One of my heroes, of course, is C.S. Lewis. I know a lot of people like C.S. Lewis. I found a quote of his. He says, The devil always sends error into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which one is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite error. Now, the Christians, the Corinthians, fell off the fence on one side. They wrongly claimed freedom. Others of us might fall off on the other side, claiming that the intimacy that God created is actually bad, or certainly we can't call it good. They may also discourage other human pleasures and pursuits that God has put on our hearts. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both of them. Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This is the totality of today's message. The question is, what is your body for? The answer is, it's for the Lord. The Corinthians said, sex is like food. When you feel the urge, it's okay to merge. The body will be done away with when we die, so what's the big deal? Such a shallow view of the beautiful intimacy that God created. That was his design. Now, our world has that same shallow view today. We often think only of the physical when considering intimacy. Our bodies, however, consist of flesh and bone, of course, but it's also our mind, our soul, our spirit, our personality, our abilities, our desires. The body is extremely complicated, and it's a very worthwhile study to define the body biblically. I ran across an article in preparation for this, a scientific, secular article on what happens to our body, especially our brains, when we 
participate in the God-given intimacy that he designed. I had 12 things there. I'm just going to share a couple of them. One of them is the logical part of your brain shuts down. I thought maybe you'd laugh about that. (laughs) Thanks for your courtesy laugh. You lose a sense of fear. And there are chemicals that are released in your brain that result in a profound sense of belonging, of bonding. And it's interesting that that same chemical is released in a woman's brain when she breastfeeds. That bonding experience, the two become one. Isn't that interesting that Scripture says the two will become one? Food for the stomach, stomach for food. That's obvious. Body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Not quite so obvious. But that's what God wants us to know today when we walk out of here. Know that your body has a purpose. Your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. What you eat matters, but it does not affect the real you. God designed intimacy with another person to help us understand what intimacy with him is really like, to give us a glimpse of how wonderful our union with Christ is and will be. Our sexuality is profound. It touches us at the deepest level. It pervades our whole humanity. It involves our soul, our spirit, our relationships. It touches our minds and our spirits. You women know this better than men simply because the way God made you so beautifully. Ray Steadman was the pastor of a large church in Southern California. He's been with the Lord now for about 30 years. I listened to one of his messages on this passage, and he says, the Bible says worship is a form of extreme intimate expression. Again, we shallowly think of real intimacy as being only physical. However, any marriage based primarily on the physical is not what God designed and will not satisfy either party for very long. Ephesians 5, 22 to 32, I'm just going to touch on a couple verses. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. Now, I want you to concentrate on just the very next phrase. He says, but... I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Biblical instructions for marriage are awesome and worthy of studying to show ourselves approved. And those instructions should be striven for. We should try to follow them. Nevertheless, marriage shows us what our, our, the church, what our intimate relationship is and will be with Christ. It's an example. So we don't and shouldn't think sexually regarding our union with Christ. We should realize and think that it is so very, very much more. Now back to Stedman's quote. The Bible says worship is a form of extremely intimate expression. Worship is a hunger to be possessed by God himself and to possess all there is of God. 
We say and we sing, take me, use me, fill me, own me. You read the Psalms, and this type of direction is there everywhere. Marriage is an example of the deepest relationship possible. Two become one. Okay, food for the stomach, stomach for food. Body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Not a sexual expression, but the possession of the Lord himself. That's what your body is for. That is what it's made for. Now let's go back to those three things I shared from that scientific study. No logic. You abandon yourself to Christ. Doesn't make sense to the world. No fear. That abandonment is reckless and bonded to the Lord, just being one with him. April 9th, 1945, Lutheran pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer is hanged at Flossenburg. Hanged with a piano string, by the way. Only a few days before the American liberation of the POW camp. The last words of this brilliant and courageous 39-year-old opponent of Nazism were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. He knew God. He had no logic in following Christ. He had no fear knowing that God would take him. He was bonded to him. There's a dignity about humanity that is far greater than any animal can claim. We are made to be indwelled by God. That is the most exciting, the most remarkable, the most revolutionary teaching in all of the Scripture. Body for the Lord and Lord for the body. It's an incredible truth. Therefore, Paul tells the Corinthians, there is just no comparison to food and stomach and body and the Lord. Verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Our bodies will be raised up like Christ. Sexuality, which pervades our whole being, will not be expressed physically in the resurrected body, but will be expressed on the soulish and the spiritual level, and it will be expressed in a way that is beyond whatever we could think or even imagine. God has a purpose for our bodies in the life to come. That's why we're given physical intimacy here. It's designed to teach us what we are like, who we are, what our role is, and what it will be. Our male design initiates with tenderness. Our female design with deeper insight and compassion and responsiveness. We are examples as the one who pursue, we are examples of God as the one who pursues us, who aggressively loves us leading and initiating as we, the church, respond. This comparison of marriage and the church as Christ's bride is consistent throughout all Scripture. The mystery of sex and what it's designed to instruct us in, in a way, is the secret of life itself. To misuse it is to miss all the beauty of it. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one. 
Your body is the personal property of Christ. He indwells you. You bring Christ to your immorality. He's right there with you. Now, you become one flesh when you're married. You also become one flesh in immorality. That doesn't mean you're married to that partner who's not your wife. It means that the union is far deeper than the passionate moment. The mystery of intimacy has existed since the Garden of Eden. It has tremendous impact. Something happens in you that's far deeper than your feelings. You can't undo it completely. Verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. (laughs) Our spirit is fused with his. We are made partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter says. We are one with him. That oneness becomes our true self. That is our identity. Identity. Now, there's a word that's used a lot in our culture today. We took a trip with our Airstream group to Maine this summer, and one of the couples that we travel along with, uh, they pull their trailer with a diesel truck. And we would pull into gas stations, and there was always plenty of gas pumps for me to put in my gasser, but sometimes he would have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait 15 or 20 minutes for a diesel pump to come available. So he jokingly said, you know what? I think from now on, my Chevy diesel truck's going to identify as a gasser. (laughs) Now, that would have had devastating effects had he actually carried that out. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is probably, it is, without a doubt, the most important passage in all of Scripture for my life. At one time, I had it committed to memory. Now I just spend a lot of time there. We're going to fly over it real quickly right now just to touch a few things and think about what our real identity is in Christ. Chapter 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died once, we died once to sin, still live in it? Then verse 12, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, it's interesting that in all of the fabulous doctrine, all the theological truth that we have in Romans, it takes Paul until this, this verse here to really give us an imperative. Now, do this. Present yourselves to God. I love chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. There was a heart change to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Then in Romans 7, the second half of Romans 7, Paul talks about the struggle that he had with sin. And I believe this is when Paul was a mature believer. And he says, I don't always do the things I want to do. And in verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the me, the real true person that wants to do what God wants to do. Then chapter 8. We read chapter 8 this morning for our scripture reading. 
And now here's the reason why. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Scripture over and over talks about us being in Christ and Christ in us. If you have saving faith, the Holy Spirit comes in. He indwells and he will never leave you. We walk according to the Spirit. I used to read this chapter 8 and think, oh, that means I have to live right like I'm always supposed to live right. No, it follows right after Paul said he had a problem living right all the time. It's not that. We walk by the Spirit because the Spirit is in us. So when we are confronted with sin, we think, what does the Spirit want us to do? If you don't think that way, then maybe you should question whether you have the Spirit. Verse 9 of Romans 8, Paul confirms that his listeners are in the Spirit. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 really help me to identify who I am in Christ, regardless of what I might feel like. Verse 18, our first imperative in our passage, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. What does that mean? The answer, I believe, is verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Wow. Your body is a holy place. Your body is where God himself dwells. You have the capacity, the way God designed you, to hold God inside of you. Your body is his temple. Intimacy outside of a God's plan of marriage, defiles that temple. It defiles that body. It is idolatry. You worship another God in the building, in the temple, that was designed to worship the one and only true God. I moved out to California years ago. That's where I met my wife. And I went to church out there to a great church. And eventually Debbie and I got married in that church. We would go to that church, and the messages were fabulous. They were true to the word. They caused us to change our thinking about something, caused us to change our lives. I love that church. For decades, every time we went out to California to visit Debbie's family, we would go to that church. In recent years, that church has left biblical authority. They have incorporated our cultural times, and have become something other than a church that really preaches the gospel. So we were there just a month ago, and so much so that people in that church have broken off and started a new church that is still true to the gospel. But when we were out there last month, we drove by that church building several times, and I felt like that building is so violated, because here that building was a beautiful place where we learned what God wanted for our lives, where we committed our lives to Christ, and where Debbie and I committed our lives to each other. And now it's not. That's the way our bodies are. Your body is not your own. Every part of your body, your body, soul, spirit, your flesh, they were bought with an extreme price. You have no final right to yourself. We're not robots. God 
makes us, allows us to make choices and we'll account for them. However, when we discover what our total selves, including our physical bodies, are designed for, and what they're designed for now and in the future, the best choice we can possibly make is to glorify God in our bodies. We do that by becoming one, experiencing that oneness with him as he designed our bodies to be. Okay, in the beginning I said I'm a gearhead. So everybody know what a gearhead is now. So bear with me. I'm going to tell you about an experience that I had, and then I'm going to try to make an analogy out of it. We'll see if it works. I said the Lexus was probably the finest car I ever had. The best car I ever had, or the most fun car I ever had was, before I was married, it was a 1969 GTO, Pontiac GTO convertible. Uh, some of you guys are drooling. If I had that car, if that car's, never mind. I'm driving back from California, moving my stuff back, and I'm pulling a little utility trailer behind this Pontiac, and it's got a motorcycle on it and some tubs and stuff, my junk, and then also the trunk is pretty full. I'm on this side of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm entering into the Virgin River Gorge. Any of you have been there, it's absolutely phenomenal. The highways divide the east, you know, you can't see the other side because there's a big mountain in between. The gorge, the rocks, they're sheer rocks, and they go up almost vertically about 1,000 feet. Now, my GTO was loud. It had dual mufflers on it. When I first got it, I took all the mufflers off, made it almost straight pipes. It had little glass pack mufflers on it. So it was loud. Now, I'm working it really hard. I'm going up the grade. It was only a three-speed transmission, but automatic, but it was very powerful engine. And I'm going about as fast as it will go in second gear up that mountain with all the load that it has on it. The sound it makes, it made, I can still hear it. 45 years later, it's still exhilarating. <laughs> I don't know that I ever drove a car a mile that was more enjoyable than driving that car. And I had the top down, and it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and there wasn't another soul around. Okay. God, somebody designed that GTO. Praise him. Okay, now my analogy. The GTO is my physical body. Oh, that I should be that beautiful. The driver, me, behind the wheel is the real me, the person that identifies as God wants me to identify. And I'm using my body in a way that it was meant to be. And Christ is sitting there right next to me, explaining everything. You can rev it this high. I designed it to make this much noise. <laughs> it was absolutely exhilarating. Okay, I don't know if you got that or not. Which is better, to cruise that GTO, working it to its limits, hearing every noise that engine makes in the Virgin River Gulf or uh, Gorge, or putting the top down and going to Lowe's and picking up some lumber? Okay, now for the application. And remember, this is not just about application. It's how will your life change 
knowing what your body is for. Well, identify as who you really are. Declared righteous. You're going to spend, your body's going to be raised, and you're going to spend eternity in an intimate relationship with the Lord. Worship intimately. Excite yourself with the mystery you now experience and which, which, you, which you one day will experience fully being with the Lord. My favorite hymn is Come Thou Fount. There's one verse in there where the first line is, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face. Those of you who've had loved ones who have gone, or maybe you've been privileged to be there when they met the Lord, just think about that. They're going to see his lovely face. Are you happily married? Don't answer that. <laughs> Praise the Lord and be that example and enjoy God's blessing. The marriage bed is undefiled. Not so happily married? Identify your role. Seek God first. And work on your marriage with a view of becoming that example. No prospects for marriage, divorced, confused over your sexual identity. Never think that your life matters less. Marvel at and revel in your union with Christ. Seek him first and above all else. He will bless you abundantly. He will bless you with his intimacy whether you remain single or not. Living together but not married, I say you're missing out. Without your whole heart committed to that person in every way possible, I think you're picking up lumber with your GTO instead of using it as God wants you to. Now, there's so many more applications that could be made. Our context this morning was about sexual immorality that the Corinthians were experiencing but other things that we need to use our body for. And think back to Ecclesiastes now. If you're musical, go for it with all your gusto. Mechanical, do it. Artistic, if you're good at business, whatever your gift is, even if you like cars, go for it with all your gusto in a way that will please God. Be one with this local body. That's what God wants you to do with your body. Let's be known for how we love one another. Put your physical arm around somebody that needs something. Speak like words of comfort, of encouragement, of understanding. Practice random acts of kindness. They're awesome. In every situation, ask God how he wants to use you in your body, his temple, and how he wants you to do it for his glory. This is the totality of today's message. The question is, what is your body for? The answer is, it is for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise you for that. Those of us who have you inside of us, the Holy Spirit, may we recognize that. May we Bond with you in every possible way and use our bodies to your glory.